Hello and welcome to Mind on the Matter. I'm Tuba Khan, currently a fourth year medical student at King's College London with a bachelor's degree in neuroscience from the University of Sussex. And I love dogs. Just thought I would throw that in there. This podcast is about mental health, how it affects our lives and the need to consider its impact. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Gemma Thavendran, consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist at the Bethlehem Adolescent Unit, South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust. We're going to be discussing the mental health of young people and how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected them. Disclaimer, this episode contains sensitive subject matter about self-harm and suicide. So to start off, this is going to feel like you're back at medical school. Um, but could you tell? <laughs> could you tell us why you decided to specialise in psychiatry and specifically CAMS? I, I I think I always thought I was going to end up in psychiatry, um, but I think my so psychiatry was number one. But I thought maybe peds, maybe ONG, um, and I did my psychiatric placement at the Gordon Hospital in Victoria. Um, and it was, uh, and back in those days, it was nine weeks of psychiatry as opposed to the tiny short placements people get now. Um, but it was such, it was such a fantastic experience. I think all the presentations, although we see the same presentations over and over again, and certainly working with uh, adolescents at the moment, there's a lot of self-harm, a lot of anxiety. But because of everyone's different stories, different family environments, um, you know, they're kind of just, I guess, their life stories, it all manifests differently. And then the treatments can be really individualized. And I think that was part of the thing that drew me to psychiatry. And the other part was, I think, um, the teamwork. And I, more so than maybe other specialties, the MDT with the psychologists we work with, the OTs, has such a huge influence on navigating the path that patients walk. Um, but I think in the end, it is challenging working with the wider network around the child, but actually that's also a positive. So we work with schools, we work with the local authorities, we work with parents. And I think there's a bit of optimism in child and adolescent psychiatry where actually people aren't so far down the road of their mental health. It's quite early on. So yeah, and it can be really rewarding. Yeah, it definitely sounds it. Could you tell us a bit more about what are the most common conditions that come to your care? So I work in an inpatient adolescent unit. So it's a very sort of, it's quite a niche environment. Um, And typically, I think outside of COVID, we would see uh, maybe 50% of the cases would be uh, psychosis, typically first episode psychosis um, or drug-induced psychosis. Uh, a little bit of uh, mania in the context of bipolar disorder and then the other half tend to be emotional dysregulation and self-harm. We get a lot of comorbid um, ASD, we get a lot of uh, comorbid um, gender identity issues Um, but that's kind of I think inpatients. I think broadly across CAMS you'll see the full spectrum. Um, A lot more anxiety disorders present in CAMS, things like OCD, eating disorders, that sort of thing. Just to talk a little about self-harm and emotional dysregulation, because it is such a common um, condition that young people are suffering. I think we more and more are seeing it. And even my colleagues who've been working on the ward for 10 years said 10 years ago, it wasn't as bad as it is now. Um, I think it's sort of important to try and understand how what's going on for the young person in those moments, um, because I think sometimes there is this idea that 
there's a little bit of maybe an attention seeking um, notion, I think, particularly because there are social media accounts that do post pictures of self-harm and, and really sort of unhelpful content. Um, but just to sort of say in the moment, there are, there are various explanations, but self-harm goes with um, emotional dysregulation. And what that essentially means is we all have day-to-day -day variation in our emotions. Sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're sad, sometimes we're being pretty neutral. Um, but people who struggle with emotional dysregulation have very high, well, not very high highs, but high highs, but very, very low lows, where they feel the world comes crashing down in an instant. And in those moments, they get negative thoughts, they struggle with emotional pain, and things are, we, we call it emotional distress, but things are getting worse and worse and worse in their head. And sometimes a way of ending that is to physically harm themselves. And it's just a way of stopping that distress because they've physically done something. It's also linked to um, their own self-esteem and maybe it's linked to kind of changing emotional pain to physical pain. Um, and sometimes I think people sort of say, oh, well, but they're, they're not hiding it. And, you know, sometimes family members might struggle when the young person is doing it kind of in the open as if to say, well, I'm not going to pay attention to that because they're obviously doing it for attention. And I think there is an element of needing reassurance. And so we sort of sometimes say they need reassurance because actually they need someone to help them take them out of that emotional distress. Um, and that's a lot of the work that we do on the ward, particularly the nursing staff. So when a young person is distressed and, and heading down that road to have a self-harm incident, the nursing staff work with them um, either with sort of soothing activities or trying to talk to them or whatever really works for the young person and coming up with a plan so that when they go home or at school that same plan can be used to help them in those moments of distress. Yeah yeah I think it's really important you brought that up actually because I think even before I did this placement with you I didn't fully understand self-harm and the reasons for it and I think a lot of times with movies and shows and like you said social media it is thought that oh it's for attention but it's actually a lot more complicated and difficult to break the cycle for the young person absolutely and, and a lot of it is rooted in trauma um sometimes sexual trauma sometimes ptsd it's it's such a complex um condition i think you know over the next 20 years 30 years i'd be really interested to see where we go in terms of the research because a lot of it is psychology based so it's hugely interesting. And you mentioned incidences of self-harm have been increasing over time can you think of any reason why? I think I love to put it down to social media um, but I actually think I think a lot of people do and it's really easy to kind of say oh social media but actually you know I think we in a way it is I think we cultivate our Instagram feeds to the things that we're interested in but and I think if you're struggling with your mental health there's a lot of accounts out there who will feed into that sort of um, way of thinking. And some of them are recovery accounts, but recovery accounts that some of them do relapse and things. But I think also overall for young people, and I say young people, I mean anyone from kind of childhood all the way through to university students and after, um, it's a difficult time. Um, it's difficult uh in terms of the job situation with brexit you know i think there's a lot of anxiety about the future there's anxiety about climate change um there's lots of kind of talk about the me too movement and how that's a really positive movement but it also has made 
sort of young people confront some of the trauma that they may have experienced um, because people are talking about their own trauma so much and suddenly things might be coming back to them or they might be sort of living that trauma um, more on the surface. So I think it, it sort of feels like it's a convergence of lots of different things, um, but it, I'm not sure when we'll reach that sort of top end, you know, top end of the bell curve, I guess, um, and then start getting better. And I know we don't fully understand the pathophysiology of these conditions, so basically what's going on in the brain. Take psychosis, for example. We know it involves dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, so it acts as a chemical messenger between neurons. It's involved in things like controlling movements a person makes and also their emotional responses. Could you try and explain a bit more about what is happening in the brain during psychosis? Dopamine is the pathway involved in psychotic disorders. And the more we recognise about the disorder, actually it's, it's specific areas of the brain um, where dopamine, dopamine pathways are affected. Um, and it's actually um, an increased amount of dopamine will lead to psychotic symptoms, which is why when you give L-DOPA to patients with Parkinson's disease, too much result in hallucinations. So that's how I remember the pathway. Um, and so the antipsychotics we have, um, there are five different dopamine pathways. And they, a lot of them weren't created with the intent of treating psychosis. It was sort of accidental. And that's typical of all mental health medications, accidental they worked on these pathways um, but they all to some degree or another are antagonists of the pathways and we do know the other thing we do know that again I'm not really sure how to explain it because I think it's got huge amounts of research potential is that with chronic psychotic disorders the actual structure of the brain changes and you can see that across MRI scans over the course of somebody's lifetime and we also know that with each repeated psychotic episode um, they IQ, for want of a better measure of sort of uh, functioning, their baseline gets lower. So actually, following every psychotic episode, they'll never quite reach the baseline they had before. And that's why relapse prevention is so important, um, particularly with kind of the population that we work with. Um, trying to keep them out of this sort of revolving door of relapse is important for their functioning as well. Yeah, that's so important. And we've just briefly touched on this. There's so much more we could talk about. But I want to bring it back to the holistic care you mentioned before. Obviously, growing up is difficult enough. I mean, I remember in school, you're going through all these changes and it's really overwhelming. What are some of the issues you've seen young people with mental health conditions struggle with? Um, it's, it's, it's a really important time of life, as you say, growing up. Um, and I think sometimes as adults, we can sometimes look back and maybe romanticise or minimise a lot of the struggle. But from um, sort of developmental psychology um, that the adolescent phase is where the individual is trying to assert their independence but at the same time is still a child and looking to their parents for guidance and that conflict as well as developing your own kind of self-identity and who you are as a person it's such a fragile time and so I think um, that you combine that with peer groups and peer dynamics are often really complicated around the kind of adolescent time you've got the sort of first ideas of romantic relationships or possibly you're not quite there yet your body's developing you may have issues around how you look or because of you know the wider kind of social context about body image um you may get peer pressure into substances there's huge amounts of stuff and then you throw in school and i think as years go on school seems to be more and more um pressurized 
Um, and as an example, with you know the exams, well, with the COVID issues, um, a lot of schools took everyone's kind of you know end of module tests and amalgamated that as a grade, and obviously that causes huge anxiety. So I think it's when we think about mental health conditions, we obviously break them down into predisposing, um, precipitating, and perpetuating. I think all the things I've spoken about fall into the perpetuating. It's all the other stuff that somebody has to deal with. And then you think about why now? And I think some of the things I mentioned around exam stress, relationship stress, um, family dynamics at home can often precipitate um, the mental health crisis, including things like also substance misuse. We know that cannabis um, and substances can induce psychosis. Um, So I think it's that combination. That's why I think the MDT is so important um, because it it is so complicated and you do need different people looking at different facets. For people that don't know, what are the different aspects of the MDT? So um, within CAMS, um, so the unit that I work, we've got uh, individual psychologists, so they do one-to-one work with young people. We have family therapists who work with parents, siblings, or anyone in the young person's network. Um, We also have on our wards social workers, and that's because a reasonable, I think about 40% on average proportion of young people who come through our units are looked after children or various stages of that. So the social workers will do a lot of the liaison with community teams. Um, So then we end up also working with foster carers sometimes or residential placements if that's where the young person uh, resides. Um, We also have an occupational therapist and her role is to assess for um, activities of daily living. So we have sort of young people, say, with psychosis, um, who we want to get an idea of what their functional level is, um, particularly if they're moving on to sort of sort of 17, moving on to independent living. They also, um, the occupational therapist and psychologist run groups on the ward. Um, and again, that's to explore either the issues that come up for young people. So very recently, we've had groups um, on social media use and unhelpful social media use. Um, and also things like arts and crafts and just giving a sort of outlet for some of the anxiety and some of the feelings that young people have. And then there's obviously psychiatrists. I can't believe I mentioned psychiatrists and nurses last. But, um, <laughs> the psychiatrists are there and then the nurses do the bulk of um, actually the daily looking after young people, including a lot of the actual mental health work um they do one-to-ones every day with the young people and then we link in we've got our own hospital school and then we link in with um the young person's own school yeah that's a huge team linking into it you mentioned working with parents how have you generally found parents knowledge of mental health condition I mean it probably varies yeah it's it's interestingly variable in that you can sometimes get parents who are so um, well read but because of that they're so inflexible in their thinking and they've sort of almost explained away their young person's mental illness by oh well, they've obviously got this and it's obviously caused by this and it's not really anything to do with me and that's sometimes as difficult as parents who have no knowledge of mental health um, so so part of our role is psychoeducation and that can be done either by the family therapist or myself or the nursing staff or a combination um, but I think sometimes culturally, I think that can have a significant impact in how people understand mental health. Um, and also, I think parents come to us, well, knowing that their child's in an inpatient unit or in CAMS and has mental health issues, they're hugely vulnerable because they, they worry about being criticised about their parenting. 
which I completely understand, but it can therefore make their engagement with us quite challenging um, because you know it is difficult to hear where uh, other professionals might feel you've impacted your child's mental health by acting a certain way, for example. Yeah, I think it is easy to forget that a young person's mental health struggles will also affect their family in so many different ways. And of course, bringing up COVID, it's been really hard on everyone, but in particular young people in terms of missing school, being isolated and being away from family. I know I was reading a few articles about how COVID has affected the mental health in young people, but what are your thoughts on this? I think we all, I think collectively as a society, were aware of, well, very quickly aware of the effects of COVID, but I don't think I quite realised the scale or the time frame. I think when, COVID, when lockdown first happened in March, we were really quiet um, and we were really worried we'd be inundated with young people struggling. But actually, I think there was this element of everyone really stepping up a gear um, and trying to manage. And I think kind of particularly with young people who have ASD or for young people where where family homes are really kind of full of conflict and really difficult places to be, the loss of school initially actually wasn't an issue, but then I think over time has grown and we sort of maybe in the last month and a half have had an absolute wave of mental health come through. Um, And I think it's so complicated. I think the loss of school structure, but we've also had a lot of Uh, anxiety about attending school again when you've got young people who might have been anxious already or might have been bullied at school who've had months off going back seemed really difficult um going back into that routine uh even being out and about and worrying about how the virus you know I think schools are definitely places where the virus is being spread um young people carry that anxiety with them they worry about infecting their parents or about infecting their grandparents So I think those are aspects that perhaps I wasn't quite so aware of. Um, I think young people also, sometimes a bit of misinformation that goes around. um, And I've seen young people uh, out and about, some of whom don't wear masks. And I think it might be difficult if you're worried about a person at home and you see your peer group not wearing masks or taking it really relaxed, that's gonna cause your anxiety. So it's hugely complicated. Um, But I certainly have seen, we've seen a lot more self-harm and anxiety presentations through the COVID crisis. You were talking about school and not being able to go to school and some people being isolated. How important are these social interactions for young people's development? Hugely important. I think um, so much so that the government continue to, despite locking down adults, have said that you know adolescents can still meet in groups and out and about and things because I think we recognise that peer relationships form such a huge part of an adolescence identity. And I think even with younger children, um, having that stimulation from, from other people their own age and being able to play games and develop skills in that way cannot really be replicated by parents. And I think it's also exhausting on the parents to expect them to do that. Um, so I think these sort of social interactions, it's the way we learn about how we who we are as people and how we interact with other people. And there's no other way to really replicate that successfully. And what advice would you give to young people who are struggling right now or even worried family members and friends due to COVID-19? I think the most important thing is to seek help. And I say that with the caveat that I know that you can't really attend GPs face to face. Mental health is inundated. But 
there are avenues, um, there are charity organisations, a lot of psychologists have moved to doing online clinics, so things are back up and running. Um, if, if you're worried because the young person is isolating more and you feel like actually they've withdrawn into themselves, I would say if there's a way to gently encourage them out um, of that, and that's, I'm sort of saying speaking to family members because we are in lockdown again at the moment, to sort of just just sort of almost label it and say, you know, I am really worried about you. I'm worried that you're spending a lot of time on your phone or in your room. Um, what can I do to help? And sometimes the young person won't know um, what to do, but there are resources, and I'm happy to send you some that you can link maybe in the podcast. Um, to just kind of help with, uh, typically I say sort of two two boxes. So one is a go-to activity box. And it sounds sort of ridiculous, but actually when your brain is not in a great place, the last thing you can do is think of things to do to get you out of that because your brain just doesn't want to think about those things. So almost having a go-to where you know that adult colouring books or, um, you know, like a little bit of self-care or something you can do with someone else. So like kind of banana grams or games that you can play that are really not intensive. Somebody else can also grab that and say, let's do one of these things. Let's get you out of your room. Um, and the other thing is, is if you've got sort of a young person who is struggling with anxiety and panic attacks and that sort of thing, having another box um, that's got sort of calming um elements so essential oils are great um maybe an ice pack or a heat pack uh maybe some i mean everyone's got their phones and their headphones but maybe having a spare set of headphones so that you can actively go and plug someone's phone in and get them to listen to music those sorts of things can be really helpful for families in the moments to sort of help with engagement and calming down and the other thing i think is just i mean there's, there is you know lots and lots of information available but I would just say that professional help is probably the most important thing and getting it early before some of the um, characteristics and symptoms start getting entrenched and start sort of deteriorating and getting worse. Yeah I think it's so hard like you said when you're in that phase when you're in the moment it's so hard to break out because your brain doesn't want to and it's often someone else that realizes and steps in so I think it is really important for if people are worried that they try and say something absolutely and it is, it's hard for the people on the outside watching somebody struggle and not being able to help because the difficulty with mental health is that in the end of the day with the treatment plan there's got to be buy-in from that person and sometimes they're not ready or you know their brain's not ready um so I think for family members particularly who are worried it's also important that they themselves get support and I whether that's from friends whether that's from talking to their GP or talking to a professional as well um, because I think it is hugely stressful to see a family member or a close friend struggling. Yeah definitely and not forgetting your mental health and your colleagues mental health I mean do you guys make sure that you take care of your own mental health? Um, we aren't fantastic <laughs> I think um, I think sometimes we forget uh, to look after our own mental health and I think what we are good at as a team is recognizing each other's burnout um, and recognizing when somebody is struggling a little bit um, and so we've been really supportive of making sure each other takes annual leave and when they take annual leave not to bother them while they're on annual leave um, I found that it's been very hard to switch off since the beginning of COVID because I've not physically left my house or left the country. So you end up checking emails and things. So I think 
Um, but in non-COVID times, we actually, um, I, I, and actually in COVID times, one of the benefits of being able to work on a ward is that we still get face-to-face -face contact with people. And I don't know how people who are working at home and studying at home are managing, uh, because luckily I still get that general chit-chat of, you know, how was your weekend? Well, I did some DIY, I went for a walk. You know, we still get those conversations. And that I think I didn't appreciate until COVID how important that was for my own mental health. It's really funny because I feel like pre-COVID, we were all dreading that small talk, but now we love it. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> it's my favourite thing. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of Mind on the Matter. Big thank you to Gemma and her team for all the wonderful work they do. Like and subscribe so you can stay up to date for the upcoming episodes of the show. See you next time. If you ever feel like you need to talk to someone about your mental health, please contact your GP or a 24-hour helpline such as the Samaritans on 116 123. Please remember, you aren't alone.